You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Sarah Goldhagen, who is a an architectural critic, at one point a instructor in architecture, and also the author of this book, uh, Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, look, I really enjoyed this book. Um, you know, I think it was probably inspired right, by that Winston Churchill quote, right, where he says that, you know, we um, build our build, we shape buildings and then buildings uh, shape us. Right. And this always was very uh, meaningful to me. I, I always have thought about the built environment in which I've found myself and around the notion that most building and construction takes place without a great deal of attention to conscious design, without a great deal of attention to aesthetics or what we might call form. It's focused on function, focused on cost and other considerations. And you emphasize the need to have some kind of intentional design that thinks about aesthetics or a different type of function. But then I think you also highlight a second danger, which is that the people who are supposed to be in charge of the aesthetics or the, I like to think of it as the aesthetic function, they may have lost their way a little bit and they spend a lot of time on getting famous and getting in catalogs and maybe miss out on what matters. And this whole new discipline that you look to, environmental psychology, is built on what we now know about human cognition, embodied cognition, and other aspects of what we might think of as neuropsychology. Um, So anyway, I really enjoyed the combination of architecture and psychology. You mentioned at one point you got exposed to Lakoff and Johnson's book. Most architects don't study psychology. And you say that this is something we need to be thinking about in architecture school. So how did you get drawn to psychology? Well, I guess I would say I've always been drawn to psychology. And I had an interesting career path. I was not a psychologically oriented student at all. But knew that I had very profound experiences in the built environment. And I come from a family, my father was an urban planner, and we traveled a lot. And so I just had exposure, thoughtful exposure to a lot of different kinds of environments and have always been very aware of how profoundly they affect me. And so when it came to decide what I wanted to do with my life, I'd studied literature actually in college, but also art history. I decided that I would get a PhD in architectural history. And environmental psychology is a field that really started in the 1970s, but by the kind of 1980s, it was a little sputtering out. It wasn't a field that very many people talked about or had anything to do with, and no one who talked about architecture talked about environmental psychology at all. So I went off and I got a PhD in architectural history and then found myself, because I had written a dissertation in a modern slash contemporary topic, in the job market for schools in schools of architecture, because my specialty was considered too new for the architect that I wrote my dissertation on, who died in 1974. So art history departments were very traditional. In any case, I ended up teaching in schools of architecture, first at UT Austin and then at Harvard. And part of the responsibility of teaching in schools of architecture is that you're invited to what are called crits, which is basically students present their final works, and then you're supposed to give them your responses. And it's all a lot of fun when it's fun. And I was the one who kept asking these students, well, what kind of experience do you imagine the users of this building are going to have? And this was in the 90s. Post-structuralism was quite dominant. It's theoretical orientation in schools of architecture as well as in the humanities. And I got a lot of pushback, both from other professors and from the students who say, oh, you can't 
generalize. You can't talk about what people's experiences are. I have no idea. They weren't being taught any language to discuss these kinds of things. And basically, it was all an exercise in kind of formal innovation. And I'm all for formal innovation. But I do think that it needs to be grounded in what we know about human perceptual experience and cognition and emotions. And so environmental psychology, but also, as you point out, neuropsychology and so on. Okay, so that was like increasingly surprising to me. And then maybe even a little bit frustrating as I kept going along. And then when I realized the curriculum didn't include these things, I thought, okay, well, this at least makes some kind of sense. These students aren't being taught how to do this. Then I read Lakoff and Johnson, which, and then their subsequent, Mark Johnson's subsequent books, which are really about early salvos in neuroaesthetics. And then came the discovery at some point in the late 90s of mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are these neurons that they're basically social cognition neurons. And if I look at your face and you smile, the neurons that fire when I smile, fire even if I don't smile. So it's sort of a way of picking up on someone else's social affect. And that was really cool. It was, and it, one, it was really cool. And two, it was an indicator that environmental stimuli have a profound impact on a person's interior cognitions and perceptions, right? And so I started following that literature. And then I, a few years later, I don't know the exact chronology, people discovered that there are also canonical neurons. And canonical neurons are that if you look at a highly textured surface, you will imagine touching that surface without realizing that you're imagining it because you have these things canonical neurons that fire for sort of goal-oriented behavior and objects in the environment. So I thought, okay, this is getting really interesting because basically to go back into the academy for a minute, phenomenology, and when I mean phenomenology, I'm really talking about Merleau-Ponty, which is research psychology-based philosophy on the way that people think and experience their environments and make sense of the world and the cognitive schemas they develop and so on. Phenomenology is being through these discoveries, canonical neurons, mirror neurons, various other things, is being transposed from yet another theory into fact basically, that we think through our bodies. We understand what up is because it's above our head. We understand what down is, it's down as feet. We understand what heavy is because we feel gravity in our bodies. We understand extension because we pull our arms out and we know that the horizon is that way, the horizon is that way, and the sun is that way, and so on. Anyway, which is an extension of what Lakoff and Johnson were talking about in the Metaphors We Live By book and subsequent books. The philosophy in the flesh actually really lays this out. So then I started looking at both at cognitive neuroscience, whatever they were doing, and it's a lot of different things. There was the discovery of place cells and spatial navigation cells and so on and so forth. And I thought it's really time that someone theorize what the experience of architecture is based on what we know about human cognition and perception. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, I remember taking architectural history classes when I was in college. And it was basically, you'd sit in the classroom and you'd see a whole bunch of slides, right? Now, maybe if you're studying painting or drawing, then having an image projected on a screen or in a book is adequate. Maybe if you're studying literature, you can certainly read the books, right? And that's adequate. But I mean, to really understand architecture, you have to go out into the field, so to speak, right? I mean, you have to experience it physiologically. Do you think that just the constraints around how things are taught necessarily means that we're going to overlook a lot of aspects of what makes architecture important? I don't think it has to be that way. I mean, I think that I was talking to a dean of a major school of architecture just last week, and I was saying, do you have a course in experience or architecture and environmental perception and cognition? 
I mean, of course not, because none of them do. And yes, you're limited by slides, but there are a lot of other things you can do. You can take your students for walks. You can give them assignments whereby they go to their own apartment and start analyzing and start developing ideas about how their affect is being changed as they move from the living room to the bedroom. I mean, I was joking with my husband the other day that when I was in graduate school, my study was a walk-in closet. Well, I mean, maybe not the best environmental (laughs) environment. I'm not sure I would agree to do that again. But anyway, I think there's a lot you can do. And this goes to another point that I make a lot in the book that I think is a very important part. Part of the reason that people don't really think about the environment that much, although I think in the wake of the pandemic, they think about it more because so many people were just marooned at home for so long, is because people's, our perceptual systems are very goal-oriented and very oriented toward movement. Buildings don't move. And most of the time, the goals that you develop, and I, when I'm thinking about goal, I'm thinking I got to pick up that pencil. I mean, they're nested goals and goals. If I'm going to write, I'm going to pick up that pencil, then I'm going to find my notebook and so on and so forth. Do not pertain to buildings and spaces themselves. They pertain to our goals. That's what we're thinking about most of the time. And so our appropriation and apprehension of our built environments is very often non-conscious. And I don't mean unconscious, I mean non-conscious. And the difference is that unconscious is you can't really get it, your unconscious cognition. I mean, you're not telling your heart to beat, it's just beating. But non-conscious is a spectrum and you can become more aware of the effects that these things are having on you if you're trained to look there. And they do. I mean, we know red activates people, it raises heart rate. So does all sorts of things. High ceilings make people more creative. That's the other thing about you asked why I started getting interested in that. It's just cool. I mean, that students sitting in rooms with high ceilings could score higher on tests of creativity is just really interesting. And there's so many facts in my books then that continue to come out about these things. Rooms with windows, in hospitals, heal patients more quickly than rooms without windows, this kind of stuff. So that's an extended answer to your question. Yeah, I mean, I think the key insights that come out of psychology are that most people don't know why they feel what they feel. Most people don't know why they do what they do, or at least they don't know what's causing it or affecting it. One of the quotes I liked in the book was that, or one of the things that you pointed out is that the built environment differs from other art in that it doesn't require attention. And so in that sense, we don't normally think of it as art because art is something where you say, okay, I'm going to contemplate art right now, right? But you could be sitting in a room and this art or this artifice that's all around you is impacting you, perhaps even more so than some kind of art that you attend to in a very conscious way. Yeah, I mean, I think that every architect, one of the jobs of every designer of the built environment, when I use the architect in this kind of loose sense, because I also mean landscape architect, I mean urban designer, I mean all the whole sort of spectrum of designers that are dealing with the built environment, needs to think about the whole range of attentional capacities that people have. And, you know, I often say to architects, part of your job is attention management. Don't make people pay attention when they're just trying to find their way. Like, they've got better things to do. They're stressed anyway. They're going into a hospital or a classroom or whatever. They want to get there. That's not where you want them to pay attention. But you do want them to pay attention in, for example, so-called restorative spaces, which are spaces that people can deliberately design in order to slow people down, let them notice in a kind of fascinated and intriguing way what's around them, which is shown to lower cortisol levels and relax people and make them less stressed. So attention management, I think, is a really important part of any designers. And again, these are just, these are things that some people intuit that, but that's like the top 1% of tier of people who intuit that. I also want to go back to something you said before about most buildings, particularly in the United States, are not designed by architects. 
right? And functionality is considered to be premier in consideration. I speak to audiences of all different kinds of people from just general public to policymakers to architects to whatever. And money always comes up, right? Building is very, very expensive. And we want something to be functional. That's our primary goal is for something to be functional. And I say, yeah, great. I'm all for function. That's a good thing. It's just that there's another dimension to function. And that dimension is how people are going to experience those spaces because you don't want to stress people out if you're building a healing environment. That's a bad move. It's a bad move financially. And it's a bad move from a you know, point of view of human empathy. Yeah, I can never really understand this dichotomy between functionality and aesthetics, right? I mean, it's as if you say, okay, I'm building a hospital, so I've got to get people in and out of the operating room. And then aesthetics is about what? Adding some kind of decoration, right? I mean, it's the function of a building. I think it's just a question of whether or not you define the function too narrowly, right? So if your function is, I need to process as many bodies in per unit time, right? Then you probably ignored a whole bunch of the other functions that you presumably care about. I'll just give you one quick example. I consulted on a cardiac hospital in Melbourne that was recently finished, actually. This was a bunch of years ago, right after my book had come out. And I was giving a workshop to the people who were, the group of people who were effectively the clients for the building. It was like all the top, the heads of this department and that department and so on. And I gave my presentation about human environmental experience and how important it was and it needed to be considered in the design process and so on and so forth. But at the end of the presentation, the head of surgery raised his hand and he said, I have a question. Why are all operating rooms windowless? He said, I spend 12 hours a day in there sometimes. It's horrible. And I'd sort of lost contact with it, but I followed this along the pre-design and the design phase, and they sent me the images last week. And guess what? The operating rooms have windows. And we know that people need breaks. Even if you're doing these horrible procedures on people that are life and death procedures, you're going to do a better job if you have what's literally called in attention research a micro break. Like being able to look out a window and just see the angle of the light, that kind of thing. Well, I used to teach a course on the workplace, and about a third of the class was devoted to the physical workspace. And when you define the objectives of the company as, I want to increase productivity, I want to increase collaboration, I want to increase creativity. Well, the physical environment, built environment, has a huge impact on all of those things. It impacts retention, it impacts worker wellness and happiness and so forth. The other fact that often comes up is that the cost of the building is tiny compared to the cost of your salaries. And so if you can make some tiny little investment in the building, which will generate an outsized return in terms of worker productivity or worker retention, that makes perfect sense. And that's how you get the attention of the people but, you know, my sister's an architect, and she says that the people who are responsible typically for the building budget, their metrics are usually disconnected from the metrics of the business. They're usually told, get us a building and make sure that it comes in under budget and stuff like that. So is the problem that, say, at least for the workplace, that the people who are you know running the companies, they sort of push this stuff out to facilities and then provide KPIs to the facilities people that are disconnected from the business? Well, what I realized after the publication of my book, because I got a lot of lecturing, as I said, in a lot of different places, is that this is a multifaceted problem. I mean, I had come up through the ranks of art history and architectural history and design, right? And so, in a way, I knew my audience for this book was bigger than that, but a, that's still my core audience in some sense. And they weren't listening because they didn't have the tools to listen. So then I thought, I really need to start talking to the people who are basically structuring demand. And so one of the things I say is there is no such thing as a neutral building. If a building is not helping the people who are using it, it's probably hurting them. And 
you can do a bad building or a good building on any level of investment for the same amount of money. And anyway, so to go back to the demand issue, what I realized is that you really need to structure the way that the people who are going to be clients, what their expectations are. As much as you need to train architects to do it properly and to know where to find the research and to care about finding the research so that they inform the design decisions that they're making. Yes, but that's only half the problem. The other half the problem is getting clients on board and changing what they demand and what they expect from buildings. And I must say that in my experience, that is not hard to do. Because once you start talking to people about this, now, obviously, the talks that I'm giving people have invited me to give those talks. So in a way, it's a captive audience. But nonetheless, you know, you start talking about these things. You say you paint the ceilings a classroom blue and you give students standardized tests and they score higher. And anybody who's a parent thinks, I want my kid to score higher. Why is this feeling blue? They're very sort of intuitively obvious, and yet no one has ever thought about the moves. And most people, when they hear about it, they think this is something that I should do. Well, you know, I've always thought that architects are similar to doctors in a lot of ways, right? And one way in which they are professionals is that they might know better than the client what's good for the client. You know, that's sort of the idea, which is why presumably you're supposed to get an architect to approve whatever it is that you've built. I was discussing with a friend of mine just yesterday. He said, I can't believe that in America, you can't get contact lenses without a prescription. He said, you have to go through this gatekeeper, right? This doctor. And presumably that's because we think that the demand side is not going to be driving the right solutions. They're not aware enough of the spillover effects or of the science behind what it is that they're asking for. So we require them to go through a doctor. And yet it seems like the architectural profession has lost its role as a gatekeeper and that most clients will just go to construction companies and get stuff done. Do you think that we need to push back on that and expand the role of architects and give them a bigger role in approving or denying the projects of the clients and the construction companies? Yes. And I think that's probably also not enough. I mean, I think you need to change architectural education. You need to inform clients about demand. You need to change building codes. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is building codes are supposed to ensure the structural integrity of a project, but they're also there to ensure the health of the users inside. That's why, for example, in New York City, you can't have a bedroom without a window in it. And, you know, all over the country, there are these building codes. And why don't building codes incorporate health and wellness measures into their protocols? I mean, we know people need natural light. If they don't have it, they do a lot worse. It messes up your circadian rhythms. It messes up your moods and so on and so forth. What I've come to see is that it's got to be a multi-pronged effort. But yes, for sure, let's take real estate developers who are always trying to maximize their bottom line. And they're always trying to maximize their bottom line. That's not necessarily a bad thing. What it does do is that they just allow for the repetition of the same solution over and over again, often on the same, you know, they'll buy 300 lots, they'll build 300,000, they'll orient them all the same way, even though the streets are curving. And that means that one house is going to get nothing but north light and another house is going to get nothing but south light and have sun blazing in all the time. And if you just make their protocols more complicated, So like orientation is important, direction of the winds is important, these kinds of things. They're going to end up with more sellable houses. I mean, houses that people are going to want to live in and stay in a lot longer. So I think of pretty much any part of the spectrum of people and industries and professions that are involved in the built environment There needs to be a kind of education and increase in sensitivity. And I should say that one thing that gives me a lot of hope is the advances in technology, which makes it so that you can actually build much more complicated designs 
and use computer to solve a lot of the geometries and so on for you so that they are better tailored to human experiential needs than you could, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago, where straight lines was all you got. Well, but that presumes that the consumers actually know what they're looking for in housing, right? So just like corporate clients, when they're buying buildings, might not be aware of the impact of the built environment on productivity and so forth. I imagine that the typical home buyer is similarly unaware of the impact that the house will have on their well-being. And, you know, you talk about this idea of blindsight. I love this metaphor. Can you sort of uh, elaborate on that? Because, I mean, it seems to me that if you're in an environment and you feel uneasy, you feel uncomfortable, unless you are paying attention, right, you're probably not going to realize that the reason why you're uncomfortable has to do with the built environment. Even if you go to a new space and you feel better in that new space, you may attribute it to something completely different from the change in the location, right? Yep, totally. I mean, it's, yeah, you could think it's because the smell of the garbage that's next to you when it had nothing to do with that. I mean, there are all sorts of things. Blindside is this really fascinating and one of the wonderful phenomenon, which I use as a metaphor in the book. So first I'll describe what it is, and then I'll say how I used it metaphorically. Basically, people have two visual systems, which was not known until recently, until the discovery of blindsight, which was about 20 years ago. You have one system, anyway, I won't go into what they are. One is called the what, the other is called the where. In any case, some psychologists who were working with people who had damage to parts of their visual cortex in such a way that they experienced themselves as totally blind. I mean, they couldn't see anything. It's just they were totally blind. If it was only to certain parts of the visual cortex and not to other parts of the visual cortex in the visual system, they discovered that if you, for example, shined a light at a certain place in their visual field, they would point to where that light source was, even though they insisted they could see nothing. And I actually saw a video just last week because I was going back to some of this of the first human blindsight patient walking down a corridor with the psychologist who was studying him behind him that had cones and books and garbage and all sorts of things around there. And this guy just navigated straight through that corridor, bypassing every single obstacle along the way. And he was blind. And the reason that is, is because you have this second visual system that is not linked to your sense of consciousness. So he said he he was blind, I have no sense, but in fact, he was seeing. It's just that he wasn't conscious of the fact that he was seeing. And that's the definition of blindsight. And the reason it makes perfect sense is because what I said in the beginning of the interview, which is that most of the time, people don't pay a whole lot of attention to their environments. They're busy. We're all busy. You're thinking about your daughter who was you had a fight with yesterday and whatever, and the things you have to do and the dinner you have to make and so on and so forth. You're not thinking about your environment, but that doesn't mean the environment isn't affecting you. So in this sense, we're all blindsided. Well, I mean, I think that the blindsight, it seems like even for things like narrowly construed functionality, a lot of people are blind. I mean, I cook a lot and I visit lots of people's kitchens and I'll walk into some people's kitchens and I'll see them cooking. And I'm like, the way your kitchen's laid out, you're doing twice as much work. And it may have been years and they never noticed <laughs> that they're, you know, going in all these different places. So even for the things that are strictly functional, I think a lot of people are kind of oblivious. But when you're talking about sort of the bodily cognition or embodied cognition, I mean, there even larger percentage of people seem to be unaware. So what is the advantage of bringing this to the surface? Because unlike the typical blindsight people, those people will never be able to recapture complete sight. But for us, we can, right, by exploring the science around this, I'm not sure you even need the science around it. I think if you're in a state of mindfulness, I mean, all of the great architects in history, they didn't have access to this 
science, but they were paying attention. They're paying attention to their body. They're paying attention to connection between their body and their affect, their body and their motivations and actions. What is the benefit to becoming more conscious and more aware of the impact of the built environment on us and the way we think and feel? Well, as consumers, we'll ask for better buildings. And my hope, my humble hope, is that we will, as this knowledge spreads, and it is spreading, we will decrease the number of really stupid decisions that are made every day. I'll give you one example. This is a friend of mine who's a cognitive neuroscientist, actually, who works on our relationship to the built environment. He did this wonderful study downtown in New York. There's a Whole Foods in Soho that is basically one large glass, undifferentiated facade, maybe two stories high. And then if you walk along that facade and then you take a left, you're in the East Village, lots of little storefronts, little retail spaces, brownstone, stoops, that kind of thing. So he thought it's a perfect way to study people's responses to very large buildings that have undifferentiated ground-level facades, and then see what their neurological response is to something that has what's called in psychology a lot more affordances. I mean, a lot more opportunities to stop and explore and do this kind of stuff. Okay, so he actually put portable EEGs on people's heads, and he looked at what was happening in their brains as they walked. Well, guess what? Stress levels went up. I mean, all the neural signatures associated with stress went up when they were walking on that block long. Blocks are very large in New York, as you know. Undifferentiated class facade, no scale clues, no texture, completely overwhelming in the human scale. And he was also testing other things. Their heart rates went up and they walked faster. And then when they turned and they went to something that was more human scale and so on, well, you can imagine, I mean, things calmed down and their stress levels went down and they walked much more slowly and so on and so forth. So if you're Whole Foods, would you want people to rush by your building? Probably not, right? You want them to think, oh, this is a nice place to hang out. I think I'll go inside and so on and so forth. Okay, that's just one example. Like, a very basic example of a stupid design decision. Stupid design decisions on the larger scale are, I mean, I hate to pick on him because he's a good guy, but take these like super angular structures that Daniel Liebeskin designed. They make people uncomfortable. They actually do. We know that those kinds of cute angles elicit the fear response. And the fear response comes along with an If there's an approach avoidance spectrum, like you're very far along the avoidance spectrum when you're seeing those kinds of angles in a public building. So it's just, it's not a good design decision. It looks good in pictures and magazines, but that doesn't make it a humanistically good or even particularly ethical decision for a public space. I mean, that's sort of the spectrum. And In general public, I think people, once you realize how profoundly these things affect you, you'll demand better spaces. I mean, the most powerful study, in a way, because it's really about life and death and healing and so on, was one of the early studies that kicked off the field, which is in 1984, in which this doctor, an environmental psychologist, excuse me, he actually went in for gallbladder surgery. And he noticed that all the gallbladder surgery recovery patients were put on this one corridor. So they'd all had the same procedure. He controlled for smoking and weight and all the kind of usual things you control for. And he followed gallbladder surgical patients in recovery in this one hallway for a year or a couple of years. And it was a double-loaded corridor, which means you had a corridor in the center, rooms on one side, rooms on the other side. The rooms on one side looked out on a brick wall. The rooms on the other side looked out on a pastoral view. And he found that consistently, the patients in the rooms with the pastoral view healed over 30% more quickly, with over 35% fewer requests for pain medication. That is a concrete, I mean, you want that room with a view right? You want your mom to have it. 
Yeah, and I always wondered if part of that might have been due to the care providers and their desire to spend more time in the nice room as well. But look, I mean, hospitals have already incorporated this insight. So I think UCSF here in San Francisco, which was built in the last decade or so, has made sure that every room has a view of greenery, right? I mean, they baked it into the construction because hospitals, that's their business. But do you think you could see a day where a doctor might actually prescribe to a patient that they move, right? I mean, we were seeing doctors now, in, well, I don't know how big the trend is, but instead of just assigning medication, saying, hey, go out and exercise, right? I mean, we know that if you want to alleviate depression, exercise is probably better than most pharmacological interventions. It's hard to get reimbursement, right? You know, you, but you can still write it on a piece of paper here, go exercise. Do you think that doctors will start to ask questions about like, well, okay, well, tell me about your room. Tell me about your house. Tell me about your windows. Tell me about the neighborhood you live in because these things might be affecting your health. And maybe the prescription would say, switch neighborhoods, switch rooms, switch lighting. I wouldn't leave it up to the doctors, frankly. I mean, I think they should do that kind of stuff, but I think that the changes is, if they're going to come, they're going to come top down from policymakers in this kind of thing. I mean, for example, I live in a very poor neighborhood in New York. And, you know, these people, you could say move all you want, but they're not going to be able to. But what you can do is the policymakers can begin to revalue interventions in the built environment a little differently and start saying, you know, if we want to bring down the the child mortality or the asthma rates or the high school dropout rates in this neighborhood, there are built environmental things that we can do that may be just as effective as some other interventions. I should say that one of the problems in this field is that because the kind of nexus between what the information that's coming out of cognitive neuroscience, the information that's coming out of environmental psychology, and the information that's coming out of public health. A lot of people working at this from different angles hasn't really been consolidated. I mean, some of these facts are not there yet. And a lot of interventions need a fair amount of robust data before doctors can go off and say, this is what you should do. And I don't think that data is going to be coming very quickly. Nonetheless, let's shift to a different field just because it happens to be something I'm working on right now, learning outcomes in schools. Current research on learning outcomes of the design of the built environment in schools suggests that if you do the right thing, which is a bunch of different things, it has to do with acoustics and natural light and plants in the interiors and available storage space, all sorts of different things. But if you do enough of those things in a classroom, the impact will be as high as the variability in teacher effectiveness. So you can't point to one thing and say, well, there's no storage space and that that's going to have a huge impact. But if you do a bunch of them, it's as much as the difference between a bad and a good teacher. And over the course, this guy has proven, his name is Peter Barrett, over the course of a student's education, students that learn in well-designed classrooms end up about a year ahead educationally than students who, do, who learn in less well-designed classrooms. So that's a big deal. Well, do you think that the importance of the built environment is decreased in the world in which people spend so much of their attentional resources on their phones and their computers and televisions. I mean, I always wonder, like, how can somebody put up with living in such an ugly place? And then I realized that for many people, their attentional resources are so narrowly directed that their peripheral vision is almost completely suppressed, right? And a lot of the impact that happens is due to the peripheral vision, right? Yes. But there is a lot of interesting, or not a lot, but there's some interesting research coming out about how peripheral vision is how you sense atmosphere in a space. So, you know, again, we have foveal vision, which is what we're actually paying attention to, and then everything else is peripheral vision. But peripheral vision is something that happens very, very, very quickly. I mean, microseconds. And 
when you walk into a space and you sense a kind of atmosphere, an atmosphere is a code word for what people in my field use to talk about the emotional impact of the space on you, its effect on your affect. That happens largely through your peripheral vision. And even if you're staring at your phone. Do you think even people notice anymore? It doesn't matter if they're noticing it. I mean, so much of this is non-conscious. I mean, they may not be aware that they're noticing it, but it's having an effect on them anyway. I think that's the best way to put it, is that as we were talking about before, you're, we're never aware of 80, 90% of the perceptual stimuli that are coming our way, but that doesn't mean they're not affecting us. It's just that we may be misinterpreting, and we often do misinterpret. I could feel nervous, and it's because my feet are cold. There's an environmental stimuli that's being misinterpreted as an internal stimuli. It happens all the time. And so do you think that, I mean, a lot of people have commented on how their kind of state of anxiety that people experience is higher perhaps now than in prior periods. Again, the data is a little ambiguous on this, but do you think that the general anxiety levels could be in part driven by the built environment? I mean, there have been changes to our built environment in the last couple of decades, and part of it is greater suburbanization. You talk a bit about suburban development, which one would think would facilitate kind of more proximity to nature. And so you'd think that would be a positive, but you argue that it hasn't necessarily been a positive. I mean, are there any changes in the built environment in the last couple of decades that may have impacted the general sense of well-being that people experience in places like the United States? That's a big question. I'm going to reframe it a little bit and talk about the pandemic and the post-pandemic. I do think that the series of lockdowns during the pandemic did heighten people's awareness of their environment because they were in one place and they couldn't leave that place. I also think it helped people realize how much they need a continuous diet of visual variety and interesting stimuli because they weren't getting it. You know, if you're stuck in your one-room apartment, if you live in Manhattan, you know, it's one room. So then you start doing stuff for it. I mean, one thing I often say is people hate to be bored. I mean, there's just one thing people really hate. It's, I mean, there are a lot of things people hate, but it makes people very anxious and uncomfortable to be understimulated. And the environment can step in and play a lot of that role. Now, I think the most interesting thing that is happening in the built environment right now is probably related to the workplace because nobody can figure out what the workplace is for and how to, how to use it, what it should be for, how to reconfigure these monoliths that we have that were meant for a kind of work that most people don't want to do anymore. And I think what, be, there, you're right that there is more data around the workplace and around healthcare than there is around anything else, because of course those are two big money drivers in the economy. And it will be very interesting to see, and I think some organizations that are involved in this space are already beginning to incorporate the insights from environmental psychology and other research-based disciplines, because it's going to help them retain their workforce. I mean, Ford Motor Company is doing this, for example. WeWork, when it was still around, was among the trailblazers in collecting data on how people use their spaces and plowing that back into good design of their spaces. So there's interesting stuff happening. I remain optimistic in the long run. I think this information is so interesting and captivating to people that it's only going to grow. Mm -hmm. Now, look, some of the psychology that you talk about is deeply biological, right? I mean, you talk about the different senses and the senses that nobody talks about, right? Like thermoperception and proprioception and so forth. But some of it's also 
cultural, right? And linguistic and symbolic. So do architects now need to study biology as well as anthropology and semiotics? I mean, what sorts of things should they be studying? And you know, you might argue, well, how on earth are they ever going to study all these things in a limited amount of time? And presumably now that we have Revit and other software tools, the basic job of an architect is easier. So maybe they have more time to spend on these other disciplines. Being an architect is not an easy job. Most of them don't make a ton of money and they're required to master as best they can a whole bunch of different fields on the fly. Like all of a sudden you get a library, you have to learn everything about libraries that there is to know and design a great library. I mean, this is what they do. Should they be taking courses in biology? I think that's a big ask. I do think that that part of the basic architectural curriculum, and this is true for landscape architects, urban design, all these other places, is there should be a basic course that is required in environmental perception and cognition. And that should just be part of the basic architectural curriculum. I never understood why it wasn't. Once I started reading in these fields, I was like, but wait a minute. Everybody I know in the architectural world is making these kinds of claims all the time about the effects their buildings are going to have on these people. And there's actually research that they don't even know exists. So, I mean, that's sort of an easy transformation. I mean, it's less easy than I'm making it out to be, believe me, because there are all sorts of institutional inertia, which is a different conversation. But that will happen, I think. Well, do you think then that the way we're going to evaluate architects will also change? I mean, if you're an architectural student, then you're typically evaluated based on your maquette, right? <laughs> you know, or you're based on some drawings that you have or some renderings. And even when you're competing for a commission, you're probably going to show a bunch of pictures and so forth. That's why we get all these super cool things like the library that looks like an open book from outer space, you know, but has light coming in and destroying the books, right? I mean, do you think that we'll be able to, or we'll have to, come up with, I don't know, virtual reality renderings of buildings so that they can be evaluated based on some simulated experience? What's it feel like to enter the building? What's it feel like to exit the building, to navigate the building, to find your way through the building? I mean, that probably would be a much better way of evaluating a design than to look at the two-dimensional representation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know have actually commissioned buildings, built them, and said, I had no idea it was going to end up looking like this. Because looking at architectural drawings, it's not for the untrained. I mean, you need to lots and lots of different two-dimensional drawings in order to, and then you need to be able to put all that together in your head. I mean, some woman said to me, she commissioned a house a couple of years ago, and she said, I had no idea the ceiling profile was what was really important about my house. And well, how could she know? She doesn't know how to draw these things. So architects already are, the better architects, I think, already are using VR to try to give people some sense of what the experiences that they're paying for are going to look like. And again, you know, the more we get the word out, and that's what I'm working on now, the more people will demand this. And the more people demand it, the more architects are going to step up to the plate. Mm -hmm. And then presumably architects have to play some role in educating consumers, right? Because they can't be expected to educate themselves, right? If you commission a house, you're probably going to commission one house in your lifetime, right? And the architect does lots of houses. And so they probably see a lot of the same mistakes being made by clients. And so presumably they have to correct them, educate them, tell them what's going to work or what's not going to work. I mean, look, when architects design, they do these diagrams called functional adjacency diagrams, which are like these little bubble diagrams. I mean, here's this place where you spend the most space. Here's whatever, and they bubble, and then they figure out the relationship of each of the bubbles to each other. And basically, you need to add another layer of planning, which I just call experiential planning because it's easy and self-explanatory, where you think about what kinds of experiences not only what am I going to do in that space, but what, how do I want to feel and at different times of day and so on and so forth. And just asking that question, making that 
part of the process, both from the client point of view and the architect point of view, would go very far, I think. Well, I think you called the book a call to action, and you are trying to remedy what you call the degradation of human life enabled through poor construction or poorly thought out construction. How much traction do you think this insight is getting? Are we seeing progress in architectural schools? Are we seeing progress in construction firms and architectural firms? I mean, I know a lot of the firms here in San Francisco that work on interiors and a lot of the firms that work on furniture, they do have departments and divisions which focus on the impact of the environment on things like productivity and so forth. Do you think that's a luxury? Is that considered a luxury or will that ultimately be considered an integral part of the profession? I think it's happening and I think it's going to be slow. I mean, basically, my book was an early salvo in what is becoming a new field. And new fields take time to catch on. And that isn't to say that some people aren't doing this. I mean, there are interior architecture firms. Some of them are doing some of this. But I think it so obviously has to happen. And there are more and more like there's this little organization actually in La Jolla, California, called the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. It's been around for 30, almost 30 years at this point, but it was a dormant organization when I started working in my book. They're exploding. They're having conferences every year. They now have chapters around the world. They have meetings constantly. They have all sorts of stuff. Environmental Design Research or association. There's at Johns Hopkins in the School of Medicine, which I love, has an international arts and mind lab, which is doing a huge architecture initiative to get things out there. So there is a kind of snowballing effect. It is going to happen and it is going to take time because there's an institutional inertia in all of these spaces, in architecture, their education, in real estate development, and so on and so forth. But once you begin to reformulate this practice, this design of the built environment as a public health practice, and it's, it is being reformulated that way, I think people are going to begin to get it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. The book is called Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Wow, it's my pleasure, Greg. You ask great questions. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.